0: I'm going to take a minute and um, just ask you to pray with me as we step into this teaching this morning that we really feel the presence of God's Spirit. Would you do that? Would you join me? Father, we're here because we've chosen to be. Nobody's forced us to. We've set this time aside. Um, we could be doing a lot of things this morning. and We choose to be here. We choose because some of us are curious. We want to know more about you and your nature and your character. Some of us, Father, just have questions this morning. Some of us are going through incredible life trauma. they are encountering storms like we've never seen before. And some of us are here just purely to worship. For whatever reason, Father, I ask that you would meet every single individual right where they're at that your spirit would be present here in such a way that you would invade this place. God, I ask that your spirit would brood over this room. Allow us in this auditorium, God, to know that we've met with you when we leave here today, and that our life would not be the same as a result of hearing your word and seeing how you want us to understand it. Speak to us directly, Father. For the many in our congregation who are struggling with physical illness right now, God, I ask you to be in the midst of their struggle, especially think of Trina Knox with her struggle right now and her time at Sparrow Hospital. Father, I ask that you be present in that room with her, surround her. And for each one of us, God, I ask that we would know that this time that we've spent here was time invested for the sake of your kingdom. Make us bold as a result of it. God, I ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I have this question asked of me a lot um, when I talk with individuals who are new to church, especially. Um, People who are very new to church life see individuals around them in the midst of worship raising their hands sometimes. And people say, Why do they do that? What's up with that? Um, I have a niece, actually, who was not raised in church. And uh, my daughter took her for the first time in her life. about six months ago, to a church service. And she came out of that service and, and said to my daughter Ashley, What's up with that? That's like totally freaky. What's going on with people raising their hands up like that? And, and, and it's a legitimate question, actually, for people who have never been in church before to, to see that kind of thing going on, let alone for people who were probably raised in a very traditional church setting. You know, I, I was raised in a covenant church on the west side of Michigan over in Whitehall. And, And, you know, we were totally like tree trunks when we'd sing. We'd stand here like good little soldiers, and we might look up from the hymnal once in a while, but that was about it. And, you know, to encounter a setting in which people sometimes in worship, some people around you are just reaching up towards God, is not only a cool experience, but it's a very unusual thing to see that happening. Unless you put it in the context of what we were called to do in Scripture, actually. You read in Psalms where David wrote about people lifting their hands to God, Lifting holy hands. And and James and Paul wrote about it actually to Timothy also, saying I wish that everyone everywhere would lift holy hands to God. A a, a reaching. But why do we do that? Let's put it in the context of a sporting event. Okay, Let's say we're at Spartan Stadium and Kirk Cousin has just thrown a touchdown pass. Does the stadium not erupt? Do not men without shirts everywhere go like this? You know, they're jumping, their hands are up, they're clapping, they're applauding, yeah! We want to be part of the experience. We want to have some participation in that moment. This week, I was watching news clips. Watched Monday night when National News was replaying the clips of what happened at the Indiana State Fair last weekend. You see, the stage collapse. People were killed instantly when the stage collapsed because of the big wind that rushed through. And if you looked very closely at those video clips, you saw this reaction. Individuals throughout the entire stadium putting their hands to their head, not knowing what to do with the moment. Others going like this, some like this. We have to have a physical reaction when something is so overpowering we're trying to understand what just happened, or in some cases, to reach to be a part of it. What I'm sharing with you will make more sense as we work through this text this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to turn to John chapter 6 so that you can follow along. Where we left off two weeks ago, I wasn't here last weekend because I was on vacation and uh, Gary filled in, but where we left off two weeks ago in John chapter 6, we found Jesus in the northern part of Israel, up in this region called Galilee, And if you don't know this about Galilee, this was kind of the political hotbed of their time. This is where a lot of the rebels lived, the revolutionaries who wanted to see change. They wanted Rome thrown out of Israel. And so there were a lot of revolutionaries living in the northern part of Israel in this area called Galilee. And this is where we find Jesus in this northern part. And His popularity is skyrocketing. He's incredibly popular among the people. As you saw last time we were together, if you were here, there were 20,000 people waiting for Him on the shoreline when he arrived. Uh, What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus was in Capernaum on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he decided to go to the eastern side. He wanted some alone time. He was going to his quiet place. Look with me on the screen, John 6, 1. Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, meaning he was on the western side, got in the boat, they started rowing across, put the sails up, and his 12 disciples and himself, they were going to Jesus' quiet spot. They wanted to be alone. Why? John the Baptist has just been beheaded. Jesus' close friend, confidant, cousin, cheerleader, the one who proclaimed who he was, has just had his head removed from his body by King Herod. And Jesus wants some alone time. So he's going to this secluded place and he's taking his 12 guys with him. But when they get there, they look on the, on the beach and they see from the horizon... This mass of people, thousands of people who already heard that he was headed there and so they beat him there. They race around. Can you imagine the mixture of emotions present among a crowd that big? you got the curiosity seekers. you got the thrill seekers. But you got those who are really desperate. They need God in some way to invade their life. And they want the touch of Jesus. And they're, they're present there also. And they're in such a hurry to get to where Jesus is at, to be present. They don't even remember to bring their lunch with them. And they don't remember to bring supper with them either. They come there with nothing. And so Jesus ends up not only teaching the crowd, but healing the crowd. Anybody who had any type of infirmity, any type of need, he healed them. And then he feeds them on top of that. As a result of his actions like this, the crowd is concluding, Jesus is the prophet. He's the one that's been promised from long ago. He's the one that we've been waiting for. And they decide that they want to make him king. And Jesus knows the crowd is worked up. They're into this frenzy now, and they want to take him. They're going to converge upon him. They want to put him on their shoulders and carry him to Jerusalem and kick out Rome. They've got the greatest military leader that could have ever lived. He can actually heal people who are injured on the battlefield, he can actually feed the troops. He can kick Rome out. We need a political leader, someone who will give us some some security. Look with me on the screen, John 6, 15. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. See, they wanted someone to rule them, to, to guarantee their security. There is no social security system at this time. There's no welfare system. There's no government waiting to give you free meals. You merely earn your own living and you work for everything you get. So with Jesus as their provider and their protector, they're never going to want for food again. They're never going to deal with illness again. No wonder they want to make him king. So they want to organize a revolt. And as a result of knowing this, Jesus is about to take some action. Not only going up onto the mountainside by himself, because he wants to leave the crowd behind. He also does something with his disciples. Look with me on the screen at verse 16 from John chapter 6. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not come to them yet. Now, you're going to see this morning that we're going to compare this teaching from John along with Matthew and Mark's writing, because John gives us this really, really shortened version of what happened that Matthew and Mark really expand on it. So you're going to see that up there. But what we understand as a result of this setting is that this is early evening. The word that's used there is "opsios," And it means the point where the sun is starting to set, but it hasn't set yet. It's not dark. It's the early part of evening. And we find out that this is springtime because we looked a couple weeks ago and we heard that this is in the midst of the Passover. So it's around the month of April. So the sun's not out until like 9.30 at night like it is here now in the summer. The sun's down around 7 o'clock, so this is a pretty earlier part of the day. But Jesus did something that Mark tells us about that John doesn't tell us. You'll see it on the screen, Mark 6, 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida. So it's not just what John said that the disciples got into the boat, but we see that Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. The word that's actually used there means that He forced them. He compelled them to get into the boat, push off from shore, and head out to sea without Him. Jesus made His disciples. Why? He knows He does not want the disciples caught up in this superficial, king-making crowd environment. He does not need his twelve distracted. So he says, I'll send the crowds away. You guys go. He pushes the boat offshore and Jesus removes the disciples from the situation. So if you look on the screen, you'll see a map so you understand this setting. This Sea of Galilee up in the very top of the map, if you look to the northern part, you might be able to see there in fairly small print the town of Bethsaida. That's on the northern eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus fed the people was just south of that on the eastern shore. So when he pushes them out and they head out to sea, they're arcing up to Bethsaida. That's what Mark tells us, that they're headed to Bethsaida according to Mark 6.45. So apparently the plan is this. Their destination is just to go a little bit up to the north and catch up with Jesus there. That's what they're thinking. They're going to meet up with him later. He's going to stay and put the crowds away. But I don't think that's what Jesus' plan is. Now, they probably left not fully understanding why Jesus is making them leave. They're very much caught up in the fact that there's there's this huge cheerleader crowd on the shore. Finally, finally, our master, the rabbi, is going to get the honor due him. So he pushes them off from shore. I'll see you later. And they're looking at this massive crowd. They're beginning to say, we want a king. Now, Jesus has taught them, understand, to pray for the kingdom to come. Finally, it appears that the kingdom is going to come. Our rabbi is going to get his due. So I'm sure that they're caught up in the excitement as well. Now, we're told, according to John and Mark, Jesus had not yet come, meaning they went up to Bethsaida and they waited, and it's getting dark. It's now the second part of the evening, and the sun is setting. Where's Jesus? We're waiting here at Bethsaida. Jesus doesn't show. See, they've got this plan that they were going to meet up with him, but Jesus has not come yet. So at some point, they get back into the boat and they push off and they head out towards Capernaum, which is on the western shore. It's not a very far journey for them in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. They can do that, and they could probably make it there before it got too late into the night. So let's look at this understanding here that John gives us in verse 18. John says this, this is what happened. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. And John is the master of brevity. He's just given us this little glimpse. But we understand from Mark a little bit more detail. Look with me on the screen, Mark 6:48. They're straining at the oars for the wind was against them. So we understand they're in a tumultuous situation. They're rowing to the west. And the wind's coming out of the west. Matthew gives us even more detail. Matthew 14, 24. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves. This word battered has a very specific meaning. And you see it on the screen. It's the word baznizo. It sounds like an Italian dish at Olive Garden, doesn't it? It's not what it is. It means to be tortured. Their boat is being tormented by the waves. Why? Because of what John wrote. This is a Megas wind. He said it's a strong wind. You're familiar with that word. If you're you're a fan of the Transformers, you've heard of Megatron. Megas is huge. Megas is exceedingly great, high. This is not just a spring gentle rain water the flowers. This is a storm and the disciples are in the midst of it. And worse yet, They're there because God made them go out into it. Have you been in that place? Have you been in that place where you find yourself in the midst of a mega storm? And it's not of your own choosing. Circumstances have unraveled in such a way that you find yourself in that place. God sent you out on a mission, you've got a task. And things have unraveled in such a way that you find yourself in this incredible storm. And it's so much safer back on shore. That's where you'd rather be. You didn't choose to get pushed off land, but you're there now. And now you're fighting against this. Some of you are there right now. And this is far too real for you. You know what it is to be in this situation. These guys are encountering a storm that is so powerful, this Megas wind is so big that it actually blows them off course. That's what we're told. Look with me on the screen, Mark six forty-seven. The boat was in the middle of the sea. What should have been a simple journey from Bethsaida on the northern shore on the eastern side over to Capernaum by professional fishermen, guys who made their living on the sea, turned into this nightmare of events, and they find themselves in the middle of the sea. If you know anything at all about the Sea of Galilee, perhaps you've looked at it historically over the years, especially if you've grown up in church, you know that on the northern shore, it's surrounded by canyon walls. And these canyon walls raise up to almost 2,000 feet above sea level. Now, in the Middle Eastern air, the, the environment surrounding that becomes incredibly superheated through the midday sun, but when the sun goes down and the air cools off, the air rushes over those canyon walls and drops cold onto the surface of the water. Now, the Sea of Galilee sits 600 feet below sea level, so a 2,600-foot drop for that air cooling as it goes down, and it hits the sea like the nozzle on the end of an air compressor. And it whips the sea into torment. And in the midst of that, they've got this storm going on. So they're desperate trying to reach the western shore. And they're fighting against this wind coming out of the west, trying to get to Capernaum. And these guys are tough. These are hard guys. But even hard guys cry. You're going to see in this next section, I actually call this in my notes, When Grown Men Cry. I want you to see verse 19. Then, when they had rowed three or four miles, that's the first part of it. So you get an idea of the physical condition of these men. At least seven of the twelve made their living on the sea. They know what it is. Now, these, these big boats, you can Google it later today yourself. You get online and you put in the Jesus boat. You'll see a, a boat that was discovered from the first century on the Sea of Galilee. It gives you an idea of what the size of these were. Big enough to hold twelve men, obviously, plus the catch of fish. And it had six set of oars. So you've got six guys on the oars, rowing, fighting against this storm, trying to get to the western shore. And we're told 25 or 30 stadia. That's what it says in the Greek language. We say three or four miles in our language. A stadia was measured by the, the length of a stadium, a Roman stadium, a Colosseum. 607 feet long. And John wrote, there are 25 to 30 stadiums out into the ocean, out into the sea. So we understand... This is a very substantial distance. This isn't something where they can just get out and swim to shore. They can't change their mind. And what happens next, no one has ever seen in the history of the world. And it's terrifying. Look with me in the midst of this storm, what you're going to see in verse 19. Verse 19 says, Then they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. Now John is very kind when he says frightened. Mark and Matthew are not so kind when they describe this setting. So I want you to picture this in your mind because you've seen storms blow through. We had a big storm blow through Lansing yesterday. I looked outside. I was here at the church. I looked outside. I saw the flashes of lightning. If you're in the midst of the sea when it's pitch black and you're in a storm and it's the middle of the night, and you see flashes of lightning. You're seeing a strobing effect. And they're seeing this human form walking towards them with the flashes of lightning. No wonder they're terrified. This is the way it's described in Mark 6:48. the setting. Look with me on the screen. Seeing them straining, speaking of Jesus, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them about the fourth watch of the night. He came to them walking on the sea. According to the Roman clock, the way time is kept, the fourth watch of the night is between 3 in the morning and 6 in the morning. 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. It's pitch black. They're exhausted. They've just helped Jesus feed 20,000 people. They arrived on the beach earlier in the day wanting a day off. Jesus, can't you just send them home? Give us a break. We want a day off. But Jesus keeps them heals them, feeds them. And they've dealt with this crowd, and now their master has forced them out. And they find themselves in the midst of this situation. Can you say stress with a capital S? Three to four miles out to sea, struggling for hours. The wind is spraying in their face. You've got the mist of the water half blinding them. They continue to row and work against this. Big guys. And they've rowed now, we find out, for six hours. They left shore at seven or eight in the evening while the sun was setting. And now it's after three in the morning and they're still in the midst of the storm. And in the midst of this blinding spray, they can't quite make it out as they're rowing, but they see this human form moving towards them. If they've never believed in ghosts before, they do now. Look with me on the screen. Mark 6:49 But when they saw him walking on the sea they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out for they all saw him and were terrified I told you that Mark was a lot less gentle this is when grown men cry i want you to see that word terrified because every one of them saw him the word is anacrazzo look at the definition for it to scream out like little schoolgirls they're crying that's what you see here when you see Anakorazo screaming at the top of their lungs. I'm sure some of them are running for the front of the boat trying to get away from the back. They see this form moving towards them. Twelve big, tough guys who could have easily starred on the deadliest catch. Okay, they made their living on the sea. They understood what it was. Why are they screaming? There's no natural explanation for what they're seeing. And it causes sheer terror. They're more than just puzzled. Leonardo da Vinci was puzzled when he read this story. Because you can't discredit eyewitness accounts. And you've got three of them. Three eyewitness accounts and you can't discredit what they're saying. So da Vinci tried to figure out what's going on here. You know that he actually sketched up a way that he believed Jesus walked on the water. In the 15th century, Leonardo da Vinci was struggling with this. I want you to see the sketch on the screen. He believed that Jesus put boogie birds on his feet. He's got like these big walkers and he's got poles out there. Yeah, right. I don't think that's what happened. He just crafted them there on the shore. You might as well know that there's a lot of skeptics who look at this situation and can't dismiss the story because there's credible witnesses that have written down a historical event. So this is what skeptics say. These are two of the most popular theories. There was a freak ice storm, and Jesus walked out on the ice. Okay, it's the Middle East, all right? And first of all, doesn't a lake have to become calm before it can freeze? We're talking about a storm. So we'll throw out the ice theory. Second most popular one is there's a sandbar in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Do you believe that? No? That's why the gospel writers go out of their way to say this. Mark 6.47 on the screen. The boat was in the middle of the sea. There's no sandbars. It's 300 foot deep there. There is no natural explanation. It removes all doubts when you read the story the way it was written. This is not a trick. Your Jesus created gravity. He can defy gravity, can he not? Absolutely. God is not constrained by human standards. Your God created the galaxy clusters. He's the one that formed space. He can overcome the forces of nature. He created nature. So if your God can be on a mountainside three to four miles away and look out and see His followers struggling, and if He can walk to them on water, can He not come up against the forces that press against you? Absolutely. Your God can stand against the forces that press against you. Who is your Jesus? Let me remind you. In case you haven't read this in a while, look with me on the screen. Colossians 1.15. Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Can He change the molecular density of water if He wants to? Absolutely. Is that how He did it? I have no idea. But I'm sure it wasn't with boogie boards on His feet. And I'm sure there wasn't a sandbar there. What I am sure of is this. He gave you visible proof. He is the creator and controller of the universe. And he merely evidenced it for them. So what does Jesus do in response to their great terror? Look with me on the screen at verse 20. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. The voice of recognition. When you were kids... For some of you, it's longer ago to remember than you want to think. But when you were a child and you had a nightmare, what did you want to hear? The voice of your parent. It's okay. You're just having a dream. Go back to bed. Everything's fine. You're hearing the voice of the rabbi, Jesus. It's me, guys. Hear my voice? It's me. Don't be afraid. That's what you want to hear in the midst of a storm, isn't it? You want to hear the voice of God reminding you everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be all right. And Jesus calms their fears. John and Mark leave out a very significant detail that Matthew includes. If you grew up in church, you're very familiar with it, but it never ceases to be humorous. Look with me up on the screen. Matthew 14, 28. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Don't you love Peter? He's so incredibly bold. The word, though, that he uses here is the word kaluo. When he uses the word command, he asked Jesus to command him to come out, to give orders. Give me orders, Jesus. Now that is a smart man. I give Peter a gold star this morning for doing exactly what he was supposed to do. When you turn to God, when you're in the midst of the storm and you're in the boat and you realize you're about to step out of one tragic situation into another, you better make sure that it's God calling you. So he turns to God and says, if it's you, Lord, if it's really your voice that I'm hearing, calluo me. Give me orders to come to you on the water. I'm going to step into the storm further. And you better not ever step out of the boat unless you know that it's God calling you. Make sure that you're hearing God call you to the next step. So that's what he does. He steps out. Look with me on the screen. Verse 29, And Jesus said to him, Kaluo, the word come. He commanded him. And he said to him, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You have little faith, why did you doubt? If you've grown up in church, you may have heard this story so many times that you begin tuning out that section. But I want to ask you the question. Look at it one more time with fresh eyes and ask yourself this. What is Peter doubting in? Is Peter doubting in Jesus? Or is Peter doubting in Peter? Let's look at the word the way that Jesus used it. The word doubt is the word distadzo. And distadzo will mess you up. Because when you read the definition, it's a little bit confusing. To duplicate. Now, I get mentally to waver. I understand that. I mean I can be mixed in my thoughts. But to duplicate has a very specific thought to it. He's blocking out. He's generating other thought patterns. He's created another way of thinking. Did I really hear God call me? Did I really hear God say, get out? He's created this other thought pattern that blocks out what he knows to be true. And that's why Jesus calls him on it and says, Why did you just adzo? You're blocking out what you know to be true. How did that happen? Look with me on the screen at verse 30. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. You can't see the wind. It's not possible. I was here during the storm. I looked outside. I couldn't see the wind. What can you see though? You can see the trees moving back and forth. You can see the leaves falling. You can see the circumstances of the storm. And that's what happened to Peter. He saw the effects of the wind around him, and he took his focus off the capacity of God to bring him through the storm. And he started focusing on the circumstances as opposed to the God who called him in the first place. That's what you see going on here. So it's not anything other than a loss of focus. He's taken his focus off what he knew to be true, that God called him and he's turned his attention to the circumstances around him and he's totally buried in that and that's why you see him beginning to sink because other than his capacity to see God he's seeing the circumstances anybody here want to admit to doing that i absolutely do it you can understand what peter's going through right here we're not talking about the power of positive thinking do you understand that i'm a positive guy I'm definitely a glass half full kind of guy. I'm an optimist. But this is not optimistic thinking. What we're talking about here is someone who has the capacity to focus on God and his capacities, what he is capable of, not what I'm capable of. That's where the distadzo kicks in. He's doubting. So process it another way put yourself in the boat. Do you believe that when you are in the midst of the storm, perhaps you are standing even outside of the boat, you have nothing to cling to? There's no life jacket to hold you up. Do you believe that your God is greater than the circumstances that surround you? That's really the measure. That's what Jesus is calling him on. So I have to say, first of all, command us, King Jesus. When I pray for our church and I pray for myself, Command us, first of all, to be bold enough to even say, Kaluzo me, call me out of the boat. Let me take that bold step. But when I'm in the midst of it, urge me on. Urge us on, Father. Remind us, King Jesus, it's you that called us to where we're at. Don't let us doubt. What happens when you get water thrown in your face? It wakes you up really quick, doesn't it? It's a fresh awakening. This is what happened to Peter. Look with me on the screen. Verse 30. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Splash of cold water will always wake you up and bring you back into focus. And that's what you see going on. He realized he needs Jesus. And he's got to have Jesus save him. Do you think that that prayer request was genuine? Absolutely. That's a very sincere man. Do you know that your prayers are most effective when you are most desperate? You're looking at a desperate man. And in the midst of this, you're seeing this sense of desperation being so genuine that God has a reaction. So how does God respond in a moment like that when you're most desperate? Does he look at Peter and say, you are such a screw-up man. I can't believe you. You constantly do this, Peter. Just stay there. Go down to the bottom of the sea. That's not what your Jesus does. Does He allow Peter just to bobble there for a few minutes and drink in the ocean just so he can feel the pain of his disbelief? Well, let's see what your Jesus does. Verse 30, He cried out, Lord, save me. Verse 31, Immediately Jesus stretched out His hand. That's your God. The wheels are set in motion as soon as you turn it over to God. The wheels are set in motion when you surrender and say, Help me. I can't do this. So, Peter understands he's got to turn his attention to the one who can save him. Now, it may feel like in your life there is no immediate present. You may feel like I've never seen God be that immediate with me. I would admit that I feel that way at times. And I understand, though, when God doesn't seem immediate, that that's his grace. And that's his patience, allowing his plans to work out. There's times when he's been immediate in my life. There's probably times when he's been immediate in your life. Certainly for Peter. Grab him. But there's times when God allows timing to play out. And coming from the guy who was actually sinking in the water later in his life, Peter, when he's an aged man, before he's executed, actually wrote about the nature and character of God And his timing. Look with me on the screen, Second Peter three nine. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient. Hebrews ten thirty seven says the same thing. He does not delay. Rather, the wheels are in motion. It feels like delay, but he's always acting. So he only holds back when it's part of his plan and purposes. He didn't hold back. In Peter's case, it was instant. He will not delay. Let's move on. Verse 21. So they were willing, this is John chapter 6, they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So I'm picturing this. Peter is still gurgling water at this point, and Jesus helps him back into the boat. And then Jesus steps in to the boat. And what happens? The wind immediately stops. The storm goes away. Jesus is out of the boat. Gale force winds. 18 foot seas. Jesus steps into the boat. Hush. It's gone. The storm's over. Look at what happens in Mark. Mark 6.51. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped and they were utterly astonished. If you read the other accounts of this, you see that the boat immediately, miraculously appears on the Capernaum shore. As soon as Jesus steps into the boat, the storm stops and the boat appears on the western shore. No wonder they're utterly astonished. What would you do if you were in the boat? Would you not be utterly astonished when God shows up that way? This is the only time in recorded Scripture in all of the Bible when all 12 of the disciples fall on their faces and worship Jesus. It's the first time that we see it. Look with me up on the screen. Matthew 14, 32. When they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshiped Him, saying, You are certainly God's Son. The word worship is proscuneo. They did a face plant. They reached their arms up. Whatever they had to do, they wanted to be part of what was going on. They joined in the celebration. Their God just rescued them. That's pure worship. They used the word aletheos, which the word certainly, we see it in the English language, it means truth. So this is the way they actually said it. Son of God, in truth you are. Son of God, aletheos, you are. They recognized they got God in the boat. And before we wrap this up, I just want to go over my three observations with you. If you grab the notes this morning, you see that I've written down at the very end of the notes a couple observations that I had as I worked through this text. Because these things just really jumped out at me. Number one, Jesus does call you to do more than you're able. He absolutely does. Because He's the one who enables you. He's the one who works through you. You can't do it on your own so what you do for the kingdom is accomplished through you through the power of Christ number 2 see the magnitude of the mission as a moment for faith and obedience and this is where most people check out most people saying no way you're asking me to do what look at the magnitude of the mission you've given me as opposed to like peter saying call me call me out But in the midst of it, don't use it as an excuse for not obeying, but rather as an opportunity to show your obedience and your faith. Number three, God really delights in doing the unexpected. I hope you've observed that in your life. So whatever trauma you might be going through right now, whatever might be pressing against you, whether it's financial, maybe it's a job-related situation, maybe it's relationship, I don't know, Don't try and design the way that God's going to show up. Let him show up the way he does it best, which is always unexpected. No one had ever seen Jesus walk on water before. God delights in showing up in unexpected ways, and he puts his wisdom and his power and his grace on display in the midst of those moments. We're going to wrap it up now, and I'm going to ask you to do something just mentally. And I ask you to put yourself in that boat. Michael has chosen a song specifically to wrap up this message with this morning because of the way it speaks to what just happened here in the text. Put yourself in that boat and ask yourself this question What would I do? Would, would I be proscenaling him? Would I be worshiping him the same way if I had just encountered this situation? Would I fall before Him in worship? See, we've put this entire study, the portrait, hinged on a premise. The premise is this. What you believe about God determines what you will do next. They've determined what they believe about God and it's really played out in their life what they're going to do next. What do you believe about God in your life in the midst of your circumstances? Put yourself in that boat this morning. So as we sing this song that you're going to hear in just a minute, it's going to ask you to declare a truth which is that your God will not delay. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me that God would seal these truths in our heart. Would you do that with me? And then we're going to sing together. Heavenly Father, for every individual who's in this room who's heard this truth this morning, I ask that you would make yourself incredibly real in such a way, Father, that we can apply these truths to our heart. That we can believe personally. That we can leave this auditorium and get in our car and actually personally believe, Father, that You will not delay when it comes to You intervening in our life if we're willing to offer it up to You fully and to surrender it. Whatever the issue might be, God. Some in this auditorium are struggling with their finances. Some are struggling with health issues. Father, some some are struggling with things that just have a hold of them. Others are dealing with relationships. And Father, they, they feel like we're drowning in the midst of a sea. And we need you. Be immediate, Father. Be immediate in the midst of these circumstances. Be the God who does not delay. Father, we surrender to you willingly with our hearts. Help us to live it out. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.